All right, some doozies in there, that's for sure. Let's pray. Uh, Dear Father, please be with us now as we uh, come to this chapter of Proverbs. And we pray again that you would uh, give us insight, and particularly on the last day of camp, energy to keep on engaging with your word and through your word to uh, keep doing real business with you. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, haven't we had a crazy couple of years, hey? Uh, end of 2019, no one had ever heard of COVID. And now uh, life is completely turned upside down. And um, as you can tell, we're going to be living with the impact of it for a long time. And one area that's getting a lot of attention at the moment in some of the writing around uh, what's happening is actually um, the individual and social damage that's being caused by all our isolation. And so people are talking about a second wave, not of COVID-19 so much, although we're seeing more and more strains coming through, aren't we? But actually the mental and physical health issues um, that trail in the wake of things like our lockdowns. And so they call it a social recession, uh, where they say the lack of personal contact through things like lockdowns has actually had huge consequences for people psychologically and even physically. Here's how uh, one writer has put it. He says, the value of social connection is baked into our nervous system such that the absence of such a protective force creates a stress state in the body. Loneliness causes stress, and long-term or chronic stress leads to more frequent elevations of cortisol. This in turn damages blood vessels and other tissues, increasing the risk of heart disease, diabetes, joint disease, depression, obesity, and premature death. So uh, pretty serious. Uh, But I actually uh, use this quote because I think this actually resonates with an important part of the Bible's teaching about our nature, and that is God made us as relational beings. He made us for relationship. And uh, isn't it so good that we're able to be in person again and uh, gather together? And the thing that I've especially noticed in church life that's been just a real spark of joy for me is what we've just done now, and that is to sing together. Remember that awful stage where we were able to come back to church, but we're all masked and you can't sing? And you almost get that that urge as soon as the music starts. You, You just want to get it out there because we're all together. We're here. That's just what we do. And I think that's a little indication of the way that God has made us, that we're actually uh, truly whole only when we're connected to each other. You know, there's time and place for time in our own, yes, but in the end, um, we are meant to be together. And most importantly, we're meant to be connected in right relationship to each other and to the God who loves us. And so it's actually no wonder that if we're cut off from each other uh, or, or from our normal relational activities for an extended period of time, we actually start to come apart mentally, emotionally, and even physically. And I wonder if you uh, in yourself feel the toll of the last couple of years of disruption of just being out of that normal rhythm and routine of just being with people and whether you, like me, uh, are just absolutely knackered at the moment. Now, what does this have to do with Proverbs 25 and wisdom? Well, everything. Uh, so Proverbs 25, I hope you got the impression as, we, as it was read, is not about a society in crisis like we are a little bit. In fact, it's the opposite. It's actually a little picture of salvation. And that is God's plan to build his kingdom where his people come together and work joyfully for his glory in a way we could never do apart on our own. 
And so this chapter teaches us about the vital relational and social dynamics involved in being God's people. And so uh, one of the really eye-opening things I've found about Proverbs is it's not just about a moral code for you. It's actually trying to get you to think about you in relationship to others. And this chapter in in particular, I think, shows us um, how important it is to think about the impact that you have on others, on the people around you, and also the impact that others have had on you in turn. And I think setting against our experience of physical separation due to COVID shows us how much more important that is in stark relief. So that's what we're going to do today. Uh, but before we get into it, I just want to give you three quick points um, to, to try and build your kind of uh, ammo for engaging Proverbs, and especially the main section of the book in chapters 10 to 29, which is those single sentence Proverbs. So here are the three points about Proverbs. Number one. So one challenge that um, has been reflected, I think, this weekend in conversation about reading Proverbs is that they can seem quite random and they don't fit with our usual uh, verse by verse expositional approach or don't seem to. In fact, some uh, academic scholars have suggested that essentially the way that we got Proverbs in its current order is that um, a bunch of dudes got a whole stack of Proverbs threw them in a bag, shook them around, and then got out one by one and just wrote down the next one. But I actually think it's more helpful to think of uh, these proverbs in this book a little bit more like a web. I think, is there a picture of a web anywhere on the... Nope, no web. Okay, the other thing I need to point out is I may have sent in slightly the wrong PowerPoint. And so it may not exactly match with what I'm going to say, and I can't see it. So (laughs) I'm just going to play on ahead, and Ellen's going to do a great job of just... Uh, making it all work will be fine and this is also uh, just a sermon illustration on the dangers of over-reliance on technology so there you go (laughs) we'll be right so there was meant to be a picture of a a beautiful spider's web up there and I think uh, that's a really good way to think about the way Proverbs is constructed so instead of reading it um, just like a linear narrative with a with a sustained story I think each proverb is a little bit like a strand of the web and so it kind of just crisscrosses and shoots over all of created life and builds our experience of living on the solid framework of God's wisdom. But actually, um, if you think about it, a web isn't random, is it? It's actually very carefully structured. And uh, so I hope you saw uh, last talk that we saw the uh, connections between those two proverbs next to each other. And I think Proverbs 25, those connections actually run through the whole chapter. And so just as a quick example of that, uh, if you have a look at verse 2, you'll see the words there, glory and search out. And then if you go down to verse 16, you'll see honey, sorry, eat honey and too much. And then verse 27, eat too much honey and search out glory. So you see how that kind of connects the whole chapter together? And there's actually more to it than that. And so I'm going to try showing some of those connections as we go uh, by giving a more literal translation than we may have uh, in our NIVs or ESVs or CSVs or whichever version we're using. Um, Number two, uh, Proverbs is ultimately about how God rules his world. And so there's actually a lot of focus on human rulers, and that is kings. 
And again, some scholars even think that this is not like a, you know, Collins uh, gems of Proverbs book that anyone can pick up at a, at a Dimmicks or something, but that it was actually originally a training manual for the young elite leaders of society, even a training manual for a young king of Israel himself. And uh, the more that I've read Proverbs, the more I actually find this a little bit persuasive. And uh, what we're going to see, especially in the first half of Proverbs 25, is that we, we're set in the royal court. There's the king and there's those around him. And actually, if you think about the Proverbs in that context, they actually make a whole heap more sense than just trying to read them as uh, general kind of advice for everybody. But it also needs nuancing because even though it may have been intended for the elite, in Israel, it's not meant to stay there. In Israel, those in power were charged to use it not for themselves, but for the good of those under their authority. And so the righteous character that the king was meant to develop in his court was meant to flow out and characterize everybody in the land. Okay, so number one, not as random as it seems. Number two, uh, very, very kingly. And number three, uh, just to reinforce again, the social importance, sorry, the, the importance of the social aspect of these proverbs. In other words, um, don't just read this and think, what should I do? Uh, try to be alert to, what does this proverb make me think of in terms of the impact or effect this person or action has on those around them? Okay? So, number one, not as random as it seems. Number two, kingly. Number three, social impact. That's what we're thinking. Now, Proverbs 25 uh, really just expands on the main message of the book that we've seen so far, that uh, the wise live by God's character, by his love and faithfulness. But its particular contribution is actually um, a reflection and a meditation on power in relationships, uh, the dynamics of power in relationships, and how to use relational power either wisely or poorly. And it basically says, uh, our three points, number one, God wants a kingdom of righteousness and blessing. Number two, so use your formal positions to serve. And number three, in your personal relationships, love your neighbor as yourself. So God wants a kingdom of righteousness, that's verses two to five. So use your formal positions to serve, 6 to 15, and in your personal relationships, love your neighbor as yourself. And then we'll conclude with true wisdom and true power. So, uh, point one, God wants a kingdom of righteousness for his people's blessing, verses 2 to 5. Uh, have a look at verse 2. It is the glory of God to conceal things, but the glory of kings is to search things out. As the heavens are high and the earth is deep, so the hearts of kings are unsearchable. Okay, so these verses start by actually setting the major authorities of the world in their relative places. So God is the ultimate authority. Everything belongs to him. And he can either reveal things to us or keep them concealed and beyond our reach. And so that's his glory. It's the glory of God to conceal things. But then you see he delegates some of that power of his to human kings and charges them to carry out his will on earth. They are the ones who are responsible for searching out the things that God wants and making them uh, real in their kingdoms. And what is God's will? Verse 5, righteousness. 
His throne will be established through righteousness. God wants righteousness to flow through his kings and everyone in authority to fill every corner of his kingdom. Now, I reckon when we hear righteousness, we often think of things like rules or morals. uh, And that's kind of right. But actually, true biblical righteousness is much richer and more positive because it's relational. And so uh, righteousness does include uh, rules and morals, laws, but they are laws that are designed to foster fellowship. That is, bonds of love that form a stable social framework for good to flow from person to person. So I think these verses are actually amazing because they tell us that the God to whom all power belongs is utterly determined that power be used to bless those under its authority. And this then becomes the ultimate guide for all power that we get. God wants us to use any power he gives us for righteousness. But he also wants us to be wise to how power is affected by the complexities of life and society and especially the reality of sin. And so verses 4 to 5 make it clear that the king can't do this on his own. He needs all his officials under him and around him completely committed to righteousness as well. Verse 4. Remove impurities from silver and a vessel will come out for the silversmith. Remove the wicked from before the king and his throne will be established in righteousness. And I think this is just really profoundly true of how power really works in the world and therefore why justice and righteousness are so elusive in real life, particularly in government. Because if I can put it this way, even if your tap is working fine, if there's kinks in your hose, water still ain't getting to your plants. I was in the States a few years ago uh, going to a conference and my brother who lives there took me skiing. And uh, as I was chatting to my instructor on the lift up the mountain, um, he told me that he had been a judge but gave it up to become a ski instructor, instructor because he got so depressed at all the corruption. And when I asked him to sum up the justice system he worked in, He just basically looked at me, shook his head and said, how much justice can you afford to pay me? He said, I delivered the sentence, but by the time it got to me through all the lawyers and backroom deals, it was so messed up, I had no power as a judge to do any real good at all. And so after 30 years, I couldn't take it anymore. And I thought I'd rather just bring people a little bit of joy and teach them how to ski. Isn't that really tragic that someone with as much authority as that as a judge recognises I can't do anything because of the whole corrupt system around me? And so verses 2 to 5 press on us the need to think deeply and wisely about power and how to use it. And uh, I have, there would have come up magically on the PowerPoint, uh, four or six amazing reflections on power. And I was even going to give you a Sunday morning discount Uh, of 33% and only do four of them. So if you can just imagine that and be buoyed along by that, I'll just run you through them, but you'll have to use your imagination and maybe uh, write these down as we go on your notes. So um, uh, as I've been thinking about the nature of power, um, I think we're often very, a little bit suspicious and negative towards um, power, particularly structural power. Uh, But here are my reflections. Number one, 
power is pervasive. Uh, now, again, we're, we're often very critical of those in authority, and with good reason, uh, because it's often exercised so sinfully. But at its heart, it's good. Power is good. And, and it's everywhere. Um, because, ultimately, power belongs to and comes from God. And our great hope is that one day, God's power will be complete overall. Okay? Now, also, it's everywhere because of the way God has made us. God has made us not as self-sustained, independent beings. You know, we're not completely independent of everybody. He's made us for relationship. We're dependent on each other and dependent on Him. And so, uh, God has not made us as self-contained. God has made us, actually, with things that we lack. And that's actually, again, good and intentional. So the reason why relationships are so important is because we need others to fill what we lack and we have the opportunity to fill what others lack. Uh, remember Genesis chapter 2 when humanity is created and God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. So that sense of needing each other is actually stitched into our very nature. But if you need someone else, they automatically have some power over you. Does that make sense? And so as soon as you have people, and then you multiply it in a group like this, as soon as you have people, you then have power systems and power dynamics in operation. You can't escape it. So we need to learn to live wisely with it. Okay, now, uh, that's number one. So power is everywhere, and we've got to live with it, and it's good. Number two, power is complex. So think about something as basic as making friends at school, or at uni, or here at church. Uh, I've been chatting, it's lovely, been chatting to uh, people who are relatively new uh, in this fellowship, and that's fantastic. Um, but there's challenges too, aren't there, for those who are new. And so if you're into movies, and uh, I'm aware that the teenagers are in the room, maybe think of a classic movie like Mean Girls. Who's seen Mean Girls? All right, uh, enough. Enough. Okay, so Mean Girls is about a, a girl who comes into a new town or a new city and uh, has to go to school in this new city and all about the dynamics of the, uh, the, the girls' relationships in there. And there's, I think it was based on a book called Queen Bees and Wannabes, right? And that's essentially the summary of the movie. Um, how does she kind of come into this group with its different circles and that sort of thing? And how does she navigate all the power dynamics? But just think about when you've been in that setting where you've come in new, there's a circle of people who very clearly know each other really well and, and get on really well, and you've got to try and insert yourself into that. It's actually quite difficult, isn't it? But if you find a friend, that can very quickly transform a lonely, scary place into one that you really, really love. So just pause and think about that. What incredible power just in the ability, if you're an insider, to accept an outsider into the circle. Or, alternatively, what incredible power to withhold the information and just keep them on the outer. Uh, what about the incredible ability and, uh, yeah, that, that friends have to support and defend each other with even a look or a word? It's quite amazing, isn't it? Or, what about the power that frenemies have 
to sort of be friends, but actually work at undermining and destroying each other with just a word or a look. And so Proverbs says, don't be naive to this. Understand the subtleties and complexities of the impact you can have on others and others can have on you so that you can be intentional in your circles and relationships to build others up rather than tear them down. Okay, that's uh, number two. Number three, notice how verses two to five actually stitch hierarchy and social institutions into creation as good God-given things. And this is because, as 1 Corinthians 14.33 says, God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. Now what this means is not that God is a neat freak, like everything has to be in its right place because we need order, right? It's because order is the framework and the structure for us being able to serve each other properly. So you ever been on a plane Think about the, uh, the, the safety demonstration with the mask. Uh, if you have a child with you, right, what are you meant to do? The, the adult puts the mask on first and then helps the child. Why? Can't help if you pass out. That's right. That's right. It's not because the adult is better or more important, right? And we don't care about kids, right? It's because that order and structure allows us to serve each other properly. You put on the mask first so that you can serve someone who can't serve others. Now, that means that we've got to actually be positive about hierarchies and institutions. And I just want to make a point uh, at this that I'm not drawing implications for any particular hierarchies or institutions. Uh, I just want to say that the, the whole idea of hierarchies and institutions are not bad in and of themselves. They're part and parcel of God's way of blessing his people. And so the problem comes when these hierarchies and institutions are actually used poorly, illegitimately, or abusively. And finally, uh, point four, if that's the case then, can you see how important it is that we pray for and support those in authority over us? God has placed them over us and they are accountable to him for how they treat us. And so they need his help and they need our prayers. So pray for your leaders and do what you can to support them within the bounds of God's will. And, and in fact, this is what we see in the next part of the chapter. So God wants a kingdom of righteousness, point one. And so point two, we are to use our formal positions to bring righteousness to society. Verses six to 15. Now, these verses um, move from the king to the court officials in their vital role in support of the righteous king. And they basically say that if you truly understand God uses the power of his position to serve you, then the only proper way to use the power of your position is to serve others. And so you see that verses 6 to 7 with humility. Do not boast about yourself before the king. And do not stand up in a place of greatness, for it is better for him to say to you, come up here, than to be demoted before a noble. So you do it with humility, verses 6 to 7, and you do it with integrity, verses 8 to 10. What your eyes have seen, and again, I'm just going to go a little bit more literal, I think, than uh, uh, some of our Bible translations, because I just want you to see the, the connections. Uh, what your eyes have seen, do not bring quickly as a charge in court, 
Or what will you do afterward when your neighbor humiliates you? Bring your charge in court to your neighbor, but don't reveal another secret or the hearer will disgrace you and your bad reputation never leave you. Okay, so you act with humility, you act with integrity and why, verses 11 to 15, so that through you, others experience the refreshment of serving righteousness. Just let these uh, Proverbs roll over you and just think about how lovely each of these images are, uh, except the uh, second last one. Um, like apples of gold in settings of silver is a word spoken in its fitting time. A gold earring or an ornament of fine gold is a wise correction upon an ear ready to hear. Like a snow-cooled drink on the day of harvest is the faithful messenger to the one who sends him. He refreshes the spirit of his master. Like clouds and wind without rain is the one who boasts of a gift that is a lie. Through patience a ruler can be persuaded and a gentle tongue can break a bone. Uh, I really love the image of verse 13 in particular, like a snow-cooled drink on the day of harvest is the faithful messenger to the one who sends him. He refreshes the spirit of his master. Uh, reminds me of a few years ago, I uh, thought I was doing the right thing. As a, um, Chrissy was under the pump with something, so I said, look, let me take the boys out. I'll take them to the park. It's going to be great. It was an absolute scorcher of a day, and uh, by the end of about an hour, they were just wilted. <sighs> um, but then disaster... Uh, in my enthusiastic haste, I'd forgotten to pack the water bottles. And so there they were in the back of the car, half dead. But then, stroke of genius, I took a little detour and whipped through the Macca's drive through lane and bought them each their first ever frozen Coke. Oh, yeah. And the second it hit their lips, woof! You know, their eyes lit up, they sprang back to life, they're having a great time in the back, giving themselves brain freezes, and I'm the most awesome dad in the world. Yes! Well, that is like you using your position to serve others in righteousness. And so what these verses say is think about your structured life. You know, think about your, the company that you work for, Think about your church and its dynamics. Even think about your family life. Uh, think about its organizational structure, right? How power flows within that structure, with whom power sits. And then you think about where do I sit in the pile and how can I work the system from where I am? Uh, not to manipulate things for your own gain, but so that whether you're at the king's right hand up the top or you are the court jester down the bottom, whether you're the CEO or you're the, the gopher boy, you use wherever you are to refresh others in righteousness. Uh, go back to uh, that hose analogy that I used. Okay, So I think wisdom here transforms your perspective on position and power. Uh, and it transforms it from seeing really the, the, the hose almost as a rope that you grab and climb to the top, no matter who you step on the way, to understanding that God may have placed you up or down the hose to work on unkinking the section where you are so that his blessing is free to flow to all from top to bottom. 
And uh, let's face it, some of our institutions and some of our church fellowships are pretty kinked up all over, aren't they? Pretty messed up. And so maybe he has placed you down the rope, down the chain rather than up because that's where his most powerful work needs to be done. All right, so a quick point of application from verse 13. Uh, Most of us sit under some sort of leadership. And so let's take church, for example. A lot of my mates from college are now senior ministers and there are great blessings at the top, great power. But the consistent report from them is it's also very lonely and very hard. Uh, You have to hold together so many different interests and priorities. It is an almost impossible task. Uh, One of my mates summed up his role as, well, who am I going to disappoint today? Uh, Now, I'm I'm very sad that Ed wasn't able to be here due to COVID, but I'm kind of glad that he's not in the room so we can talk about him. Um, Now, Ed's obviously very, very new to you guys, but you know, uh, there's so many great things about Ed. He's a good friend of mine personally. Um, but there will probably come a time where he will make decisions that may not sit well with you and you, you know, may even come to think that he's a little bit, I don't know, old school, a little bit Sydney or something like that. Um, or maybe he, he just gets tired and lacks energy to, to really lead with verb or something like that. And you might feel I've got fresh ideas. In some ways, I'm better trained and you might even feel more competent than them. And I think in those circumstances, there's actually great potential to get very frustrated and impatient and start to undermine their leadership. Uh, But I think these verses call on you to be a humble, faithful servant who refreshes their master. Now, let me say very plainly, this does not mean you avoid conflict, and this does not mean you can never challenge, critique, or even lead. It certainly doesn't mean you tolerate an abusive leader, and very sadly in our circles, There are abusive leaders. Uh, I was chatting to some people yesterday and we were talking about some very prominent Christian leaders who have been disgraced because of their abusive leadership and it is awful, the effect of what they do. So it doesn't mean any of that at all. But it does mean that you work hard to do these things, challenge, correct, rebuke, in a godly, humble way. As verse 15 says, through patience, gentleness and persuasion. So I find it really helpful to think, can I be like a frozen Coke to my boss, to the others in my team, to my family, to my church leaders? Can I work on my character, my communication, my motives, so that they feel supported and encouraged and refreshed? Uh, Can I contribute something positive and practical to the relational dynamics and environment that surrounds me from my position. And I think um, in our current day where we are not allowed anymore to speak openly about the gospel, actually living this way is a powerful means of creating evangelistic opportunities. As people notice the difference, why didn't you retaliate? Why do you act so differently? Why are you so positive and affirming? I think that's actually going to be a great way to create evangelistic opportunities. So why don't you take a moment to write something down, think about where you are in life, the different circles. How can I be a frozen Coke, a snow cool drink, and not clouds and wind, but no rain?
Okay, so we're saying God wants a kingdom of righteousness, and so we use our formal positions to serve. And then verses 16 to 26, and we seek to love our neighbor as ourselves in our personal relationships. Now, verses 16 to 26 moves out from the official power structures of the court into everyday life and relationships. And you can see that by the emphasis on the word neighbor in this uh, section. And the main point is that wisdom disciplines your drives to do good to your neighbor, or in biblical terms, love your neighbor as yourself. So let's start with verse 16. And again, I'm going to go a little bit more literal than maybe uh, some of our other translations, just to try and emphasize where the connections are. Uh, if you find honey, eat just enough, lest you be overfilled with it and vomit. Uh, that is one of my favorite proverbs, by the way. Uh, now, what is the point of this proverb? Well, honey is tasty. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, we've seen in the packs this week, uh, honey is great. It's tasty and it gives you strength. But if you don't discipline your consumption, of it, if you just keep sucking it down, it undoes what it's meant to do. It leaves you sick and it comes back up and you're worse off in the first place. Um, and uh, for a very uh, real experiential illustration that's suitable for kind of the demographic of this company, think about kids at a party with lollies in front of them, right? Um, if you find enough honey, just eat just enough, lest you be overfilled and vomit. But the point of this proverb is that that's also you and the effect you can have on someone else. Verse 17, seldom set your foot in your neighbor's house, lest he be overfilled with you and become your hater. <laughs> um, okay, so now this is not an excuse to be antisocial, right? All right, I'll just stay at home. That's fine. Right? Uh, it's better translated, be precious about setting your foot in your neighbor's house. A neighbor is a good thing, right? We're meant to be deeply committed to one another in giving and receiving, especially in times of need. Uh, this is one thing that I really notice and love coming out to the country is that um, uh, you guys seem a lot more freer about just hanging out in each other's houses and everything. Um, Dan and Sydney, you know, it's like you've got to uh, um, uh, organize a few years in advance and stuff like that before you even set foot in someone's house. So that's great. And there will be times when it is right to be in your neighbor's house a lot. So a few years ago, my wife Chrissy uh, had cancer and we're so thankful to our parents and so many others who cooked meals cleaned the house, looked after the kids, just dropped around to see how we're going and really cared for us. Okay, so it's not talking about that. What it is talking about is saying, don't selfishly impose yourself on your neighbor and use them just to get stuff for yourself. And that is so easy to do. Um, to my shame, I think I did this very thing uh, to a friend of mine in my uni days. Um, he had a car and he had a, a house with uh, cable TV and he had a very open kitchen with his mum used to buy, um, you know how you get uh, two minute noodle packs, like the individual packs, and then there's the five packs. And usually in the supermarket, you know, they'll cut open the box so you can take out a five pack. Um, his mum used to buy the boxes. <laughs> and so we would just rock over to his place and turn his house into a noodle kitchen for the next like six hours. Um, and on reflection, you know, he bore it very graciously, but I, simply speaking, I took advantage of him. Right? Way too much imposition and entitlement. 
And uh, in the end, you know, he was very gracious, but I think uh, looking back, I can see that at times when he opened the door and saw it was me, it was that little internal dialogue. Oh no, not again. Hi, how are you going? Come in, you know? <laughs> That's what it's trying to get at. So, so what about you? Are there people in your life that as you reflect, you realize actually, no, it is a bit one way. Uh, you've taken their friendship and generosity for granted and you've actually started, maybe unintentionally, but you started to use them. So maybe you need to change how you relate to them, even out the giving with the receiving, uh, so your neighbor doesn't become your hater and want to vomit when they see you. Uh, and this is what verses 18 to 22 then go on to spell out. Uh, so I want to skim these verses very quickly. And again, the reason why these verses are so tightly connected is because they're actually um, built around a play on words. And do I have... Oh, yeah, there it is. And um, usually, so most often, in fact, almost exclusively, when preachers start quoting Hebrew, it is utterly needless and self-indulgent. And I'll tear strips off them as their uh, sermon critiquer. But when I do it, it's great and it's fine and it's very, very important. Um, so we're going to do that a little bit now. And I just want to show you the play on words. And the key words here are neighbor, which in Hebrew is pronounced something like raya, and bad, which is pronounced in Hebrew ra. Okay, so can you hear that similar? Raya, neighbor, and ra, bad or evil or busted. And then the other interesting one is treacherous, which is pronounced boged, and garment or clothing, which is pronounced beged. Okay, so raya, ra, boged, beged. And they use this play on words in these verses to show how failing to discipline your desires and drives can lead to destroying your neighbor. Verse 18, a club or a sword or a sharp arrow is a man answering his neighbor, Raya, a testimony that is a lie. A bad, Ra, tooth or a lame foot, trusting in a treacherous person, a boged, on a day of trouble, taking away a garment, beged, on a day of cold, vinegar on a wound, and singing songs to a troubled or a bad, Ra, heart. Okay, so that's how these verses work. And again, what you're meant to do is actually imagine the experience of these things. Getting clubbed in the head. Having the agony of a broken tooth. Trying to walk on a busted ankle. Getting stripped naked in a blizzard. Right? Even imagining them, if you put yourself into it, makes you wince with pain, doesn't it? And if you think about the hurtful people in your life and the impact they have on you, it's very appropriate, isn't it? But here is the sting and the challenge of these verses. That is also you when you fail to love your neighbor. Now, verses 21 to 22, thankfully, give us the solution to the neighbor who has become your hater and it's basically to meet them with grace and generosity at their point of need. Verse 21. If the one who hates you is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. 
In doing this, you will heap burning coals on their head, and the Lord will reward you. Now, verse 22 is a bit hard to, hard to understand. It could be taken either as a statement of judgment, heaping on burning coals by doing good, or uh, the same word to heap on is actually just a general word to sort of um, move quickly. And so it could actually be translated to snatch off burning coals. Okay, it could be taken either way, and I think the Bible also takes them both ways. But I think if we're meant to read these verses as a section, and I think we are, I actually lean slightly towards the, the grace reading. That is, um, in doing this, you will snatch burning coals off their head, and the Lord will reward you. Um, that is, you're taking away the cause of their anger against you. Now, verses 23 to 24, uh, better to live on the corner of a roof. Uh, I will studiously skip for this moment, uh, not least because um, Chrissy made me promise I wouldn't crack any jokes at this point, and I just didn't want to argue with her about it. <laughs> uh, no, no, we will come back down to it, because I know it, it is a troubling verse, isn't it? And it does seem a little bit sexist, but uh, when you read it in the flow of all the Proverbs, I hope we'll see in a moment that it isn't. It's actually just illustrating an important general principle about intimate relationships, um, and I will make reference to it, but uh, hopefully you'll see what, what we're trying to get at when we do. But let me just go to the conclusion in verses 25 to 27. And notice the return of that water metaphor in presenting that final two paths choice that we have of wisdom and folly or sinfulness. Verse 25, cold water to a weary soul and good news from a distant land. A muddied spring or polluted well the righteous who fold before the wicked. That's the key choice. Which one will you be for your neighbor? And then finally, drawing together all the threads of the chapter, verse 27, it is not good to eat too much honey, uh, nor is it honorable to search out matters that are too deep. And like a city whose walls are broken through is a person who lacks self-control. Okay, I think great summary of the chapter. Discipline your drives and desires. Humbly accept the place God gives you because you can trust that he uses his power to love and serve you. And I hope you can also see how Proverbs 25 then ultimately sets the foundation for Jesus. See, who is the righteous king who came not to be served but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many? And just as a final lovely echo of Proverbs 25, uh, do you remember that verse in Matthew 10:42 where Jesus says, I think it's coming up on the screen, is it? Nope. Matthew 10:42, if you want to look it up. Uh, if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones who is my disciple, will he, cer he will certainly not lose his reward. Or later in Matthew 25, verse 40, Jesus says, whatever you did, for the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. You see how that resonates with what we've seen in Proverbs 25? And so this chapter challenges us. Will you be a messenger who refreshes your righteous king by loving your neighbor as yourself? So let me wrap up. True wisdom and true power. Um, I remember one time... Uh, oh, Luke Brown's gone. No, there he is. Luke, block your ears again. Um, one time at home, one of my boys was being a bit of a handful and it really did affect the whole house. It was 
pretty awful being around. You almost did, here it comes, verse 24, want to live on the corner of a roof instead of in the house. And as he walked by, you know, huffing and puffing, I was just about to try and lay down my fatherly law and give him both barrels about how I was behaving. But I just got this Jedi sense, Jedi father sense, that something was going on for him that he wasn't talking about. And instinctively, I knew just what was needed. A dad joke. Um, and I knew, I knew exactly what would happen. I would get the eye roll, I would get the huff and puff, but it would just lighten the mood just enough for him to open up and, and be able to talk through what was really going on so that we could comfort him. And then I also knew that this would then reopen the positivity doors for the whole family. Now, uh, it worked. Fantastic. And look, let me say, I am not the most sensitive of guys. Uh, it certainly doesn't always go that smoothly, and nor is every conflict or problem that easily resolved. But it reminded me of what Proverbs 25 is trying to build into us. Right? What a remarkable privilege that God has made things like families and structures that we hang out so much together and we're locked in so much together that we just build these deep relationships where you know someone so well that you can almost engineer their response to you like a Jedi mind trick. What power! What privilege! What an awesome responsibility to be in relationship to know the impact that you can have on someone else and therefore be able to use that power wisely to lift them up and to give them joy. And if that's what happens in physical families, how much more should it happen in the family of God? So God wants his people to come together in a kingdom of righteous, wonderful relationships. How do we do that as a church, as families, as people in relationship to others? God says, Proverbs 25, be wise. Where has God placed you in those relational networks? The people that you work with, the people that you live with, his family here. And as you look at each person around you, whether they're above you or below you in the hierarchy, you just think humbly and faithfully. How can I be a frozen Coke on a scorching day to you and use everything in my power to refresh you in God's love and faithfulness? Can you imagine the impact we'd have on each other and the world if we, his people, committed ourselves, heart and soul, to this wisdom? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for those people in our lives who have been for us a snow-cooled drink on the day of harvest, who have brought us refreshment and life because they have brought us something of your love and faithfulness to us. Help us to be wise, we pray, and be that for others and for each other. In Jesus' name, amen.